and at verse 8. And I want to read from, uh, initially from verses 8 to 10, page 1140, Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, it's interesting that a lot of Christians um, will talk about Romans chapters 1 to 8 and Romans 9 to 16 tend to be neglected by many people. And yet, the practice, and Romans 9 to 16 is really the practice, putting into practice the gospel that's been explained in Romans 1 to 8. The practice follows on from the doctrine. Now, I will make an observation here. Uh, Other people who are experienced in ministry or some of you who've been Christians for a longer time, you may be able to confirm or this may be different in your experience. But for me, one of the things that I've noticed is this, that if you start making compromises in your practice, you will soon start making compromises in your belief. So what happens is, it's not often that I meet somebody who begins to have intellectual doubts and everything else, and then after that, their practice changes. It's usually the other way around. So... um, Even in my time here, I've known somebody who was very, very strict on many different things. And then suddenly changed. Lots and lots of things changed. And suddenly, he was justifying adultery. His beliefs changed. His beliefs about God changed. And lots of questions, lots of doubts. But I think you often find that when people don't put into practice the Bible, then there can come this... Uh, doubts, fears, and often self-justification. Another thing I just want to make as an observation, or it's not me that makes it, it's Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, there are people who have a kind of tourist mentality when they come to the Scriptures. They do not enjoy going over the same ground and feel they ought to be hurrying on, always hurrying on. And I think what we look at this evening is, is very simple, it's very straightforward, and many of you will already know it, and you think, oh, I just... I wish I'd get on to the, to, the, to the interesting bits. But I think that this, for me, reading this this week and thinking about it has been uh, really, really helpful. And I do think sometimes that we do have this kind of tourist mentality. You know, the kind of thing that, let's go do Europe. So we do 14 countries in seven days and we think we've done Europe. No, we haven't. Same thing about, you know, I came to Scotland. I visited Scotland. Well, how long were you there? Oh, I've seen Scotland. One day, two days. You know, it's great. You can drive up to Skye and Inverness and back down and get on a plane. You haven't seen Scotland. And we do that with Scripture quite a lot. That There are, there are depths in, in Scripture that we often do not see. And I, again, I say that one of my great privileges in being here over the past years has been having Sinclair coming and teaching God's Word in a very simple and yet profound way. So we're going to look at these verses. They, they may appear immediately obvious to you, but I hope that um, 
God will speak the obvious to each of our hearts. And these first verses are very simple. It's about debt. Now, you and I don't like debts. Um, I've been in debt. And Chris, who was praying, you know, with working with Christians Against Poverty, one of the big problems is people get in debt. And it remains, it's a burden. It's a pressure on you. You may think, well, what does it matter? Well, it actually does matter. And let me tell you how much more enjoyable a meal is. You go out for a nice meal and you pay for it with a credit card. You think, well, that's a, you know, I'll pay it off at some point or other. Well, I tell you what's a whole lot nicer is when you save up your pennies and uh, you go and at the end of the meal, you hand over cash, it's paid, it's done. There's no burden, there's nothing left. Maybe society is changing just now, although I'm not sure uh, in, in different ways, but the culture that I grew up in was one which was very debt dependent. You always got things on the never-never. You always got things because you can pay them back and it looks so good. You know, there's uh, a fridge freezer or something and it's uh, 400 pounds. You don't have that much money and then you, you can pay five pounds a week. Ends up costing you 800 pounds. But it just seems, well, five pounds a week. We can afford that. So we get ourselves into debt. And it, it is a horrible thing to be in. Well, in Romans, Paul talks about several debts. Um, and they are, they are different. A debt is you have an obligation. You owe something. You have a friend and they bought, you borrowed something from them and you owe them it. Well, here is the obligation that Paul mentions in Romans. Number one is in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, we have a debt to share the gospel. It's not, we should go and share the gospel. Um, well, it's a good thing to do. Of course, it, it, that is. But we actually have a debt. Someone shared the gospel with us. Jesus came to us. The Holy Spirit came to us. And we owe it to share the gospel. In chapter 8 and verse 12, we have a debt to the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. We are not to grieve the Spirit of God within us. Our bodies are not our own. We are purchased with a price. In chapter 13, verse 6, we saw this morning that we have a debt to the state to pay our taxes. We, we are obliged to pay our taxes. But there's one debt, this debt here, we're told, don't let any debt remain outstanding. And I think actually that's a really, really uh, good thing to have. Try not to be in debt. Uh, if it was one piece of financial advice that I'd wish I'd been given uh, before when I was a, a student, it would have been, don't get into debt. Uh, I, it's such a horrible thing. And Paul's giving that advice. Let no debt remain outstanding except this one. Because you can never get rid of this one. You have the continuing debt to love one another. And he cites, as uh, Jesus cited several times, Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I um, the Lord. And then he does a strange thing in our cultural terms because everyone's going to go, oh yeah, love, that's good, that's cool, that's nice. We've all to love one another. Love is love. Love trumps hate. Um, let's all love each other and you say this, that's not very loving. You say that, that's not very loving. But let's just love. The trouble is in our culture, there is a, a complete misunderstanding 
about what love is. In fact, it's completely vacuous. What does it mean? Does it mean lust? You know, you're a young person, you're a teenager, and you say, oh, I love that person. Well, what do you mean? You mean you're physically attracted to them? Does love just mean like? What does love actually mean? Does love mean not offending anybody? What is it? Well, Paul does something extraordinary because, again, in many people in the church, I, I listened to a sermon this morning before I came out in which someone basically said, look, God doesn't care about anything that you do. You just have to love each other. And you think, hang on a minute. That's not what the Bible says. And love is what you do. To give a, an absolutely grotesque example, if you say you love somebody and then beat them up, how is that love? If you say you love somebody and then send them to jail for owing you money, how is that love? And so what Paul does here is he says, you owe this debt. And guess what? To love people, you've got to keep the law. Look what he says. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. These are all from uh, what we call the second table of the Ten Commandments. The first are concerned our duty to God. This is our duty to our neighbor. And so he's saying, you know, it, it kind of, this sums that up. You think about it, um, well, no, we'll come back to that just in a second. But let me deal with a couple of misunderstandings about the law. One is what we call antinomianism. And that is the view that the law doesn't matter. We're under grace. And God's law, that doesn't apply anymore. But we're being told because of the gospel, actually it does apply. And this is how it applies. And that's what he's, he's, he's telling us. I think we come to antinomianism through different routes. So, example, one of the great dangers in this church is that there are people who will intellectually appreciate what's being said and intellectually appreciate the theology and who also will contend for orthodoxy but without living our lives in a manner which commends that. So we've got it right up here and we can talk it and we can defend it, and we can argue it, but we don't live it. And that leads us into a, a kind of antinomianism, where someone will say, oh, I, I know, God is grace, God forgives, I've got this, you know, I'm forgiven, and I can do this, and I can do that. And we, we, we don't feel under any pressure of this debt of love that we owe. We owe to God and we owe to other people. There's another way that this happens, and it's what some people just some people call believism. And I have to be quite careful with this one because I don't want to um, upset delicate con spiritual consciences. But believism is this. Someone says, you just say that Jesus is Lord. You just say that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's fine you're a Christian. And that seems to have come out of Romans, isn't it? Romans Earlier in Romans 10 and 9. But there are far too many people who think that they're Christians because they've signed a form or said something and they've never grasped it. They've never, in, in, the, in the old words, they've never closed with Christ. They've never committed and given themselves to Christ, they think, well, if I just believe this, it's like a formula. And if I say I believe it, 
then I am saved. And they're told, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. And sometimes we're, we're far too quick, especially those who, of us who are evangelists, we're far too quick to say we want to choke up another one. And that's, uh, as we'll see, is often not how it works. I don't feel anything, but never mind. I believe, and that's it. But their lives don't show that they've got it. They can, they can tick the box, but their life doesn't demonstrate the love that is shown here. There's another side of that, and, and almost the opposite. It's kind of overwhelming reliance on feelings or even on mysticism. I had this experience. I had this wonderful experience, and I just feel it. I feel uh, God within me. Many years ago, I was speaking, uh, doing an outreach in a youth hostel, and I got this extraordinary letter from a, a German girl who was there in which she talked about when you were speaking, my heart was thumping, and I don't think it was because of my Brad Pitt good looks. It was, uh, she was saying, I heard what you had to say and I had this mystical experience, and it was so wonderful, so wonderful. And I, I've come across people like that several times, and you, you, you hear and you think, well, that would be great, God at work. But how do you know? You know by the fruit of it. You know by, if, if they move from that mystical feeling to actually committing themselves to follow Jesus Christ. So antinomianism, or just ignoring the law, uh, can come in that way. The opposite of that is, of course, legalism, where people say, right, and they, they take the basic commandments and they may add lots and lots of different things to them. So it's possible, for example, let me, let me take a, a, a simple illustration of coming to church. It's a great idea. To, to come and to worship God. That's what we're told. We're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. An antinomian will go, well, Jesus loves me so I can worship in the fields. I don't care. And he doesn't care. But a legalist will say, I go to church twice on a Sunday, maybe other times in the week. But their motivation for going is so that they can tick the box. Again, not because they really want to worship God. Moralism is, is a big, big part of that. And I think, again, that's what Paul is dealing here because he's saying love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is not just a loving feeling. It's doing God's command. But love needs law for its direction. John Stott says that love needs law for its direction while law needs love for its inspiration. Why are you going to keep these commands? Because you love people. Because you love God. How are you going to show that love? By keeping these commands. In chapter 7, he'd said that we are incapable of fulfilling the law. But in chapter 8, he tells us we've been rescued from the condemnation and of the law through the death of God's Son. And we've been rescued from the bondage of the law by the power of the indwelling Spirit. So now we've been set free, and we've been set free to obey the living God. We don't obey in order to save ourselves. We obey because we've been saved. And so he says here that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love sums up the whole commandment. Why? Because love does no harm to its neighbor. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Do not covet. Let me think. That's straight enough. Easy. Easy. I'm going to give you a bit of advice here that I would highly recommend 
because we don't like this stuff about the law, because we don't want to think about this stuff, we ignore the depths of what's involved in this. But there were a group of people called the Puritans, and especially there's a guy called Thomas Watson, who's got a marvelous book on the Lord's Prayer. He's also got a marvelous book on the Ten Commandments. Or even just go to the shorter catechism. And it's incredible what they take out of these simple things like um, do not commit adultery, do not murder. You say, well, how can they take? Because they take it from the whole of the Bible. It's not that they put things into the Bible that are not there. But do not commit adultery. That doesn't just mean that you sleep with someone you're not married to. It ties in with pornography. It ties in with Jesus' teaching about lust. It ties in with respect and how you treat other people. It ties in with lots of different things. The same with stealing. Stealing, okay, you go to a shop, you steal something. That's stealing. We all know that's stealing. Burglary is stealing. Yeah, but cheating on your taxes is stealing. Claiming expenses is stealing. Do you know what? our society is kind of weird because it kind of lines you up to almost cheat. I, I fill out my own tax form. And if I put in a few figures extra, I could get a thousand pounds. And I know that there's a one in a thousand possibility that it may be examined or checked. How often? Simple things like that. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper than that. So actually, it's a really, really good thing for us to think, do you know, I love my neighbor, or I love my family, or I have to love people. How do I do that? And there we have it. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Whatever other commandments they, they may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. When we break these commandments, we hurt and harm other people. That's why Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's why in Galatians 6, Paul says to us, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we are always to be concerned with the spirit of the law rather than just the letter. Explain it in this way. Let's say you're very against war. You think it's a really bad idea, and you go on anti-war marches and so on. And you're always talking about peace, and you're opposed to fighting, and you're against violence. But your spirit could be really bitter. You could hate somebody. What's the difference between you and someone who's really violent? Because the spirit being bitter in some ways is worse. There's a bitterness and a hardness, and that leads on to other things. So we are to be concerned. I think Jesus particularly saying you've got to be concerned about the, the, the spirit of the law, which is to be love. And I think the more I go on, the more I realize how we have to think about this and we have to try and put it into practice by God's grace. And we'll, we'll see some more of what that means in a moment. But He's going to go on to talk about the day of judgment and Christ's coming. So we're going to sing a psalm uh, about that, Psalm 50. We're going to sing verses 1 to 9, and I think the tune is Dunblane Cathedral.
I think the words will come up. The Lord, the mighty one, is God alone. He speaks and summons all the earth abroad. From rising of the sun to where it sets, from Zion's perfect beauty shines our God. Let's stand and sing this to God's praise. Please be seated. Now we're going to look at verses 11 to 14. Before we do that, though, I want to give one, one illustration of how this commandment works. Because when we break these commandments, no man or woman or child is an island. Everything we do affects other people. Um, there's a television program, which I'm sure very few of you watch, called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, some of you, the ones who are smiling, uh, the uncool ones, do watch it. Um, but it's, it's a comedy show and, you know, a, a sort of sitcom. And sometimes it's quite insightful, but none more so. There's one scene, one famous scene that um, I was actually going to show it, but I uh, didn't manage to bring it down with me. It, and it has um, Will Smith, who's the kid, and his uncle. He's talking to his uncle. And his dad has just left him. And for 90 seconds in that comedy show, there's no laughter, nothing. It's just Will Smith being really angry about his dad leaving. He, doesn't, he bought a present for his dad for his birthday, and then his dad went and left him and went off with a, um, uh, another woman or something like that. And uh, he's so angry, and it's so brilliantly done, and it's so mo- In fact, I would challenge anyone to watch it without crying because that's what sin does. This guy ups and goes. It's happened lots. Oh, I've got to follow my heart. Yeah, but you leave kids. You do so much hurt and you do so much harm. And that's what Paul is writing about here. He said, if you love, God has given us these commandments to guide us because we love people. And then he tells us why we should do this. Verse 11, do this understanding the present time. The hour has come to, for, for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation, our, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. In fact, let's just, we'll go through each of these verses because there's four principles here and I'll, I'll be brief. The first is this. Verse 11, it's clear. You do it, you've got to understand the times. We've got to know the times. And he uses the word kairos, the present time. And he's saying that as Christians, we've got to see things in the light of the end times. It's real Christianity. Um, I, I, have a, I have a watch here. What is time? Who cares if I go on till half past nine? Well, you probably do. Uh, time, uh, time is fading away. There's a, a wonderful uh, album on Pink Floyd's dark uh, song on Pink Floyd's uh, Dark Side of the Moon called Time. When you actually think about what time is, it really does hurt your head. You're trying to explain what time is. It's very, very difficult. Calendars, perhaps, watches. Is it history? Um, up until fairly recently, most historians would have said there's no great purpose in history. It just keeps going round and round and round. But then the Marxist view of history said there is a, a great purpose in history and human beings are progressing and that's the general view of history that many people hold now. So that's how you hear an expression like, oh, they're on the wrong side of history. Why? Because we think something different. They say, well, human beings are progressing. I'm uh, reading a book just now by uh, Yuval Noah Harari called Homo Deus, Man Becoming God. And... It's, an, it's a horrendous, it's so depressing. I normally read through books very, very quickly. Uh, this one I'm really struggling with, but I have to finish it because millions of people read it, especially 
people who are influencers in our, in our culture, and he believes that human beings are in effect going to evolve into robots, just glorified robots. It's just such a depressing view of humanity and of the world. But Christians have a progressive view, and it's a, it's a different kind of progressive view because we think that what the Bible says is that the world is progressing towards a judgment and towards a renewal of all things. We believe, as in Acts 15:18, thus says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago, nothing takes God by surprise. So in that context, in understanding the times, what Paul is saying is we live in the time between Christ and the second coming. The Lord is coming and there is a day of judgment. We shall see him and we shall see him as he is. And we have to think of the glory that is coming. The secular humanist, the atheist, all they have ultimately is a world that ends, an imploding world. We believe that God, what God said of the renewed heavens and a renewed earth, and that the best is yet to be. And Paul says we need to think about the times and to understand the times. There's a wonderful verse in 1 Chronicles 12:32, where it talks about there came from Issachar, Men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. What we need in the church is leaders who know the times and who know what to do. Who are reliant on God and reliant on his word, reliant on his spirit. Now, that doesn't mean we engage in speculation about when Jesus will come again, because we don't know. We know that the gospel has first to be preached in every nation. Matthew 24, verse 4. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, says Jesus, the end will come. Well, we live in the gospel age. We live in an age where there isn't a country in the world where the gospel is not being preached. Today. There isn't a country in the world. And that is really quite extraordinary. So we don't know when Christ will come, but we are to live our lives in the light of that. We are to live our lives in the light that this, this life is not all there is and that we are moving towards something definite and something real. When I was the age of some of the teenagers here, I uh, uh, had just become a Christian, and um, I read The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and I watched a couple of really dreadful Christian films, uh, and they really, as they say, put the heebie-jeebies up me. They made me really scared. What if Jesus comes and I'm not ready? You know, life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready was one of the songs. Um, and Chris is probably the only person here who's nodding his head who, know, who knows it. Um, and I, I, I remember as a, a Christian being terrified. And I do remember going into a home once of some Christians and the pot being on the boil and the door being opened and the radio being on and no one being around. And I thought, oh, I've been left behind. I've been raptured. They've been raptured and I've been left behind. Um, and in my arrogance, I once even gave a lecture at school, which my history teacher asked me to do, on the end times and Russia and everything and how I knew everything about what was going to happen. And it was all rubbish. Um, 
But you, learn, you live and you learn, and uh, the Lord was very, very gracious. The thing is this, we don't know when Jesus is going to come, but we know that he is going to return. And actually, we should long for it. When did you last pray, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus? Sometimes we pray it when we're in such despair, we think, oh, I can't cope anymore in this world. Come soon, Lord Jesus. But actually, we should pray in great joy and hope, Jesus, come soon. And the Lord waits until he's gathered in all his people. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, says Peter. Well, but we should still be living our, our lives in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. Then read verse 12. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What's he saying? It's very strong. He's saying, wake up. Get dressed. It's like you're lying in your bed and you know, you're, you're at that stage where you've maybe got a deep sleep or a fitless sleep and then someone comes and wakes you and shit, come on, come on, come on, get up, get up, get dressed. We're going, we're going. Now, we're going. And that's the kind of thing he's saying here. He said, enough, enough. You've done enough sleeping. Now's the time to wake up. The night is nearly over. And one of the important things that we can miss if we don't think about this, Paul, not just Paul, but Jesus, refers to this world as the night. And he refers to the people of this world as being in darkness. And he's, he's, we sometimes don't think like that. And he says, what are we to wear? You get up, you get dressed. The deeds of darkness or the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. And it's very interesting. Look at that word. Put aside the works of darkness or the deeds of darkness. Now, I hadn't thought about this, but this makes a lot of sense to me. And I was reading Lloyd-Jones, and it, 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 I was working out what he was saying. But to paraphrase it, what he was saying in this, he's saying, isn't it interesting how darkness is deeds? It's not our natural state. Human beings do bad things. God did not create us to do bad things. But our natures now have been corrupted and perverted. But these are deeds of darkness. They were not what we were created to do. This world is a dark place. And I have numerous verses, but just a couple for you. Men love darkness rather than light. Men love darkness rather than light. If we hate our brothers... We are still in the darkness. It's a beautiful day today. Sun is shining. And 90% of the people in this city are walking in darkness. They don't know. And you might be here and you might be walking in darkness. And they don't know. They don't see. They just really don't grasp at all what is going on and what is happening. And Kendrick's song, Great is the Darkness that Covers the Earth, he wasn't just referring to the injustice, violence, and pain which he speaks about, but he also speaks about the other things. There's a great darkness that overshadows this city. There's a great darkness that overshadows homes. There's a great darkness in people's lives. And the gospel comes as a blaze of light. Wake up, he says. Get dressed with the armor of light. It's just a great image. And how are we to behave, he says? Well, we have to behave decently. 
as in the daytime. Not in, as verse 13, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. What's he saying? He's saying, you live in a pagan culture, and this is how people behave in your culture, and this is how you behaved. Such were some of you. He says, no more. You don't do that. No more. Why, why would he say this to Christian people? Surely as Christian people, here, I'm, I'm saying to you, don't get drunk. Oh, duh, you know that. Mm-hmm. But who still does it? You think a Christian can do that? Orgies and drunkenness? Oh, Christians don't do that. You kidding? Seriously? You think that doesn't happen? I wrote a, uh, I was at the beginning of the new year, right, um, kind of, Predictions, and one of the predictions I wrote was that there'd be a significant number of church leaders who would be caught in adulterous situations. And already this year, there have been a significant number. Of course they can. They were converted from this. Now, here's an, uh, an interesting thing, I think. Again, forgive me for quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, we will be seeing more of this licentious behavior in this country too. And that's true. Just Friday night, Saturday night in Dundee City Center, switch on your TV and you'll see it. Lloyd-Jones goes on, so if you know people who've been converted, having been in such a life, this is really, I found this very encouraging. He said, do not be legalistic with them. Do not be rigid. Try to understand and try to help them. Realize the fight they must wage and understand that it does take time to work out in detail the implications of this great salvation. So we have this idea that someone becomes a Christian and suddenly, woof, they've caught on to everything. No, no. Some people are really, really going to struggle. You become a drug addict. Does it mean you're free from drugs? No. Uh, You become a Christian rather as a drug addict. Are you free from drugs? Not necessarily. You've got an addiction to pornography. Are you free from that because you become a Christian? Not necessarily. Are you free from a bad temper just because you've become a Christian? Not necessarily. I, th- I thought of two examples. I'll, I won't name them. Um, the first I couldn't name anyway. I was preaching up in Smithton in Inverness. And this man came out and he'd just been converted. He'd been converted from a pretty rough background. And he, he shook my hand. And in front of all the little old ladies and the minister and everything, he said, I'll not repeat exactly what he said, but that was a beep, 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 great sermon. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I thought, are you winding me up? And he wasn't. It was for real. It's how he spoke. Why do we suddenly think that was all going to change? He took ages to, to work out. I mean, gradually, yes, his speech um, did clean up. Or I think of somebody who was... Uh, homosexually promiscuous as a young man. And then he was converted, marvelously converted. And I remembered him uh, sitting in a room with a whole bunch of church people saying, you know, the hardest thing since you become a Christian is your sex life. Have you found your sex life hard since you became Christians? I was like, oh my goodness, I'm out of here. Um, but that's reality. That's the world in which we live. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And so he says, behave decently. Behave decently. I think this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, purely and simply because it's one of my favorite stories of all time. that calls this St. Augustine. You know, we were talking earlier about easy believism and how you become a Christian. Well, Augustine was really struggling. 
His mother had been praying for him and he knew that Christianity was right and he would come to church and then he would go away and basically as a student, he would um, sleep around, he would drink, he would do different things. And he prayed a very famous prayer, Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. Very, uh, and then he was wrestling. I mean, he knew that he should follow God. He knew that he should give his life to Jesus. And he was in a garden and he was pacing up and down. He was just really, really struggling. And he heard this voice. And it was the voice of a child saying, Tole lege, take up and read. Take up and read. And he had no idea where this voice came from. He had no idea what the child, where the child's voice came from. So he went into the house, and as he says, he picked up the apostle's book, which is this book, Romans. And he opened it at Romans chapter 13 and read verse 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. And he was marvelously converted. That was the great turning point for him. He knew that to be a Christian, he wasn't saying he was justified by works, but he knew that to be a Christian, he couldn't muck around. He had to give himself fully to follow Jesus Christ. And you'll notice as well, you have things, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, and jealousy. Let me just say this. Dissension and jealousy are as bad as sexual immorality. So you may never have committed sexual immorality, but you could be a jealous person, and you're guilty of breaking God's law. So I don't think any of us are in a position where we can look and say, well, no, 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 that doesn't include me. That's them out there. That's these bad people. Just remember, when someone comes into the church and they talk to you and they tell you about some horrible things that they have done, you have no right to go and say, well, yeah, I've never done those things. You've probably done worse in spiritual terms. Behave decently. Salvation, we behave as those who have been saved and our salvation is nearer now and that includes what was back in Romans 8 justification being made right with God sanctification being made holy glorification where where our uh, as Romans 8 points out our bodies long for glorification we shall be changed and then lastly verse 14 rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature Calvin says, Paul sets a bridle on our desires. He reminds us that the cause of all intemperance is that no one is content with their moderate or lawful use of things. He has therefore laid down this rule that we are to provide for the wants of our flesh, but not to indulge its lusts. It is in this way that we shall use this world without abusing it. God has given us many good gifts that we can enjoy, but if we overindulge, then we destroy the good that these gifts are for us. And so he tells us that we are to put on Christ. We are, some of us, you're spiritually lazy people. You are spiritually lethargic people. You're like somebody who's been reading a book, and you know, you're sitting reading a book, and you begin to get a wee bit sleepy, and maybe the fire's on, and you know, your, your, your eyes, you're struggling a wee bit with it. What do you do if that happens? You get up, you go out, you get yourself awake. And that's what Paul is saying here. I I believe one of the big problems we have in this country, in this city, in, in the church, in this congregation as well, is that some of us are just those who sit and listen. 
That's no use. God have mercy on you if you come here and listen to a sermon and say, oh, that's great, I like that, I really like that. Your job is not to sit and listen. We're here to worship and we're here to serve God. And we have a responsibility which is utterly awesome. We have a debt. We have a debt. God has given us teaching. God has given us his word. And we have a debt that we need to fulfill. Spiritual laziness. We clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not desire... We do not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a great man who inspired us to love. He is the one who, as we've seen in the rest of Romans, has done so much for us, the Son of God. And how do we put him on? We learn about him. We follow his example. We feed upon him in the communion. We trust him. We hide in him. The covering, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We are, as Paul continually says, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. And so we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not go into this world unclothed or naked in a spiritual sense. We are clothed with Christ. Tomorrow you go to work, you are clothed with Christ. You're clothed with his glory and with his beauty and with his salvation. And you pray that that would be so. Let people see Christ in me. The only Bible that people will read is me. So let them see Christ. How often, how often have I let Jesus down by going out in my own strength, my own cleverness and my own, to be honest, arrogance, thinking that I can serve Jesus and Jesus is glad to have me. Mm -mm. I should go out clothed with Christ. Put on Christ. Put off the sinful nature. Actually, if you put on Christ, then that that deals with the the sinful nature. If you just try and say, well, I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. It doesn't work, does it? One of my favorite illustrations ever is of a preacher who... um, Thought he'd preached a cracker of a sermon until he went out to visit a farmer and uh, he asked the farmer who'd been in the church, he said, well, how did you enjoy yesterday? Oh, he said, it was a nice service minister. He says, good news for my cows though. He says, what? He says, well, my cows, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't commit adultery, they don't, he says, that's what you said. You said a Christian was, they're all Christians. My cows are all Christians. Well, the farmer made his point. Sometimes we can, you know, this is terrible, this is wrong. We need to tell people about Jesus. We can see the times, but we need to tell people about Christ. Maybe one other thing just to finish. Um, we look at the glory that is coming. That's what he's saying, understanding the present time. When you look at the glory that's coming, then our troubles are momentary and light. On heaven, I don't think you, in heaven, I don't think you're going to look back and say, do you know this, I had that dreadful Monday, or that person did this, or what happened with that? I honestly don't think that that will be the case. Look at what Paul went through, and he said, these light and momentary troubles. But for me, more than anything, the greatest illustration of that is Stephen, who as he's being stoned to death, which is not a pleasant experience, as he's being stoned to death, he looks up and he sees Jesus, And he shines. See? Put on Christ. 
If you merely look at this world, says Lloyd-Jones, you might end in depression. Well, you will. You will get so depressed. I, I'm getting to a stage where I'm struggling to look at the news. Uh, you get so depressed. But, he says, the Christian never dies. For here we have no continuing city, says the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 14. And in this great phrase, it's all right. The doors are open. The world is not all there is. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a world of darkness, but if we walk in the light, we will shine like stars in the universe. That's what Scripture promises us. What other incentive do you need to live a life for Jesus Christ? Do you know this? I don't ultimately really care how many people gather here on a Sunday. What I care about is this, that during this week, wherever you are, there will be people who see something of Jesus because of what happens here. That's what we want. We don't want, you know, all the salt in the salt shaker. We want the salt out. We don't want all the light hidden under a bushel or in a church building. We want it to be out because that's what Jesus wants. There's a, a saint called St. Arsenaeus. And just the only thing I know about him is that he had a prayer. And it's a very simple prayer. And I'll tell you this, you, you won't do yourselves any harm praying this prayer every morning when you get up. Help me, O Lord, that I may begin to live to thee. Help me, O Lord, that I may begin to live to thee. See, when you're living for Jesus, you're really living. And when you're living for Jesus... Somehow, everything else pales into insignificance. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We, we are those who have to come and confess because oh, we, we don't really understand the present time. We haven't clothed ourselves with you. We've thought to go out in our own strength and our own righteousness. We think it's so easy to love and yet, we don't understand the depths of love that you went to and that we should follow. So bless us as we go from this place, not to be those who walk away with heavy hearts condemned, but who walk away with joyful hearts because this life, serving you, loving you, is possible. Not just possible, but gloriously probable. And grant that all of us may do so, that whatever dark days lie ahead of us, even in this week, grant that we would be clothed with you. And for any here who do not know you, O oh Lord, I pray that they would come to understand and see the beauty of Christ and that they may place their faith and trust wholly in you. And as Augustine took up and read, so they may also take up, read, and put on Christ. For we ask in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing a song which I have forgotten. Oh, for a closer walk with God.